And we're going to look at the last part, or next to the last part of Romans 5. And I want to talk to you about growing strong in God's peace. I am convinced that we as Americans are obsessed with security. Everyone wants to be secure. Uh, we want job security so that one day we hopefully retire, then we can have social security. And in between then, we want to have financial security. And we want to have home security. We want to have national security. That way when we go to bed at night, we can sleep without fear with our security blanket. <laughs> we want to have relational security, don't we? We want to know that we're loved and accepted unconditionally. We love security. But there's another kind of security that we long for even more so, which is a greater need in our lives. And that is eternal security. You see, we know that we're made up of mind, body, and soul, don't we? And we know that our minds are going. I know mine is. Our bodies are not going to last forever, but your soul is going to last for eternity. And the Bible says that your soul is going to end up in one of two places, one of two destinations, either heaven or hell. And what determines your destination is what you choose to do with God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says God sent Him to die on the cross for our sins. He is the atonement for the forgiveness of all our sins. That when we turn from our sins and trust Him as our Lord and Savior, we are then forgiven of our sins and our destiny is heaven. And God says that is absolutely certain. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says this, that when we trust Christ and we are saved, we gain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And it is kept in heaven for you and for me. In other words, what God wants you to know is that when you trust Christ and you turn from your sin and He gives you eternal salvation, He wants you to be secure in that salvation. But the reality is there are many believers that are very insecure in their assurance of whether they're saved. They're not sure. Because I guarantee you there are some of you sitting here this morning that are wondering, I wonder if I've ticked God off one too many times. If I've disappointed God in my failures and my blunders to the point of no return. And yet the Bible says we have peace with God. But when you hear that, you wonder, do I really? I'm not so sure God is at peace with me. Or if I'm at peace with him. This morning I want to talk to you about growing strong in God's peace in our lives. We've been working our way through the book of Romans now for, I think this is message number 27. I'm not sure. We're in chapter 5. We're slowly working our way through this incredible book. The great theme of Romans is justification by faith alone. And that is simply this. And I want to say this because I don't think we can hear this enough. For you're sitting, you may have heard this a thousand times, but until it hits your heart, it's not going to make any sense at all. The Bible says we're justified by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that means there is no works you can do. It's not based on your behavior. There's nothing you can do short of trusting Jesus Christ alone for that gift of his forgiveness. That's it. 
And I hope you really understand that because that's what justification by faith alone means. It means that we are now accepted by God. We are now made right with God through our faith in Christ alone. There is nothing you can do to gain that forgiveness. There is no behavior that you can maintain to get that forgiveness. It is only by trusting Jesus Christ alone. And so the great theme of Romans, in fact, the incredible topic of Romans is to carefully examine this great salvation that we have in Christ. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul makes this declarative statement that because of our faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Now this peace that he's talking about is not a feeling. It's a fact. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, he talks about a, faith, or a, a, a peace that is a feeling. A faith, or pardon me, a peace that surpasses all human comprehension that God gives us. That's a feeling. But what he is talking about here is the fact that we have peace with God. Now, feelings come and go. We can't fully trust them. And so why is it so important that we understand that this is a fact? Not only because we can't trust our feelings, but your feelings are only as good as you base them or found them on a fact, right? Just say yes. Okay. <laughs> now I know you're listening. You may not know this or not, but your feelings are only as good at or as, as credible as the fact that you base them on. You can't trust your feelings, can you? Sometimes you think, oh, I just feel like I'm in love. Can you trust that? No. You cannot trust your feelings unless they're solidly based on the fact. And Paul says it's a fact that we now have peace with God. And this is so important for us to understand because God wants us to have a confidence in his peace that he has given us. This fact. In fact, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he unfolds a number of these facts of the peace that God has or we have with God, this justification by faith. And one of those, he says, is that we now have access to God. We've already looked at this, but by way, a brief review. In verse 2, he says, we now have, he says, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we now stand. What he's saying there is this, that because we've been made right with God through our faith in Christ, we now have permanent, unconditional access to God. That any time of the day or night, no matter what is going on in your life, God invites us as his heavenly Father to have access into his throne room to share whatever it is that is on our hearts. We have permanent access. But because we have peace with God, there's something else that this chapter says that's very important for us. That is that when you go through hardship, you go through pain, you go through difficulty, we can be assured that as we go through those things, that there is no circumstance in our lives that is an expression of God's ill will toward us. In other words, you're going to go through trials. You're going to have problems. You're going to have pain. And you're going to have difficulties. And one of the things that we do often as believers is we begin to think, am I being punished by God? Have I done something wrong here? And yet God says, because you have peace with me, a fact, you cannot then trust your feelings when you think that God is punishing you or that he has ill will toward you. 
And so in verses 3 and 4, he explains what this means. He says, when we run into problems, and the word problems right there is tribulations. And the word there is thalipsis. It means to be squeezed. It's like being in a vice when you're in, you're in trouble, when you're in struggling, when you're in pain. It's being squeezed in them. He says, when we run into problems and trials, we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are going through some hard times right now? How many of you just came out of some hard times? Yeah. The fact is, all of us have trials. We have struggles in our lives. And isn't it true that there are times in our lives when you find yourself in the acute pain, surrounded, being squeezed by all those problems, all those difficulties? Is it not true that there are times in your life you wonder, is God mad at me? Am I being punished by God? Have I done something wrong that I'm not aware of? Or maybe it is that you know you've done something wrong. You've come to God with it. You said, Lord, I know this is wrong, and I ask you to forgive me. But you wonder, has he really forgiven you? Because you're going through pain. You're going through struggles. And yet God gives us the assurance because we have peace with him, we can be sure that there there is no circumstance in our life that is going to be an expression of his ill will toward us. He's not punishing you. He promises that when you put your hope in him and you trust him through those trials and those difficulties, those tribulations, he promises that he's going to build a stronger faith in you. He's going to enable you to trust in him more and more, and that hope in him will never lead to disappointment. So Paul is simply saying this, that we have peace with God, and he's given us facts, reliable facts, that then we can express and experience the emotions because of these facts. It is great to know that I now have peace with God. I can enjoy that peace because it's a fact. I can allow my feelings to thoroughly enjoy what God has done for me. Well, in verses 6 through 11, Paul's going to continue on walking through this whole idea of building a secure foundation, showing us how we can grow an assurance of God's peace in our lives. And this morning, I want to look at three additional facts that he gives us in these verses. But before we do that, I want to read for you verses 6 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, read with me. I'm reading from New American Standard Version. And here's what Paul says. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let me unpack these verses for us and show us how Paul is building our sense of assurance 
in the peace that we have with God and what it means to be justified with him through our faith in Christ. Very simply, there are three facts I want us to look at this morning. One is God's love, God's deliverance, and God's reconciliation. God's love, God's deliverance, and God's reconciliation. First, God's love. He says in verses 6 through 8, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you notice how many times in these two verses he describes what we were like formerly? He says we were helpless. He says we were ungodly. The word there, ungodly, means wicked. We were opposed to God in every part of our lives. And he says we were sinners. In verse 10, he says we were enemies of God. Now, that's not a very nice description if you're really trying to win friends. And yet, Apostle Paul is simply saying this, this is who we were. And while we were still helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what is Paul saying here? Listen carefully. Justification by faith means that I'm accepted by God. I'm made right with God by my faith in him. And what Paul is saying here with this combined thought is this, is that there is nothing in you that is attractive or deserving about us that God would love us or want to love us. Let me say that again. There is nothing in you that is attractive or deserving that God would love you or that he would want to love you. Why? Because you're ungodly. You were a sinner. You're an enemy of God. You were helpless. That word helpless means you were totally helpless to save yourself. And what he's saying there is that when you were in this condition, God chose to love you. Now Paul says someone might give their life for a good man or a righteous man, but who would give their life in their right mind? For a cruel human butcher, such as Adolf Hitler, or Saddam Hussein, or Vladimir Putin, or Stalin, or Mussolini, and you can go on down the list. Who in their right mind would give their, mind, their life for such a vindictive, cruel human being? Who would give their life for a man, a notorious killer, on death row? Jesus Christ did. He died on the cross. For us. Now, we may not think that we're as bad as they are, but we forget that same sin-corrupted heart that beats in their chest beats in our chest as well. And it's here where we learn something incredibly profound about the love of God and the security of that love that he has for us. God's love for us is not motivated or sustained by anything in us. Can I say that again? I want you to hear this. That God's love for us is not motivated or sustained by anything in us. See, if we're justified by faith alone, that means there's nothing inside of us that God says, Oh, yeah, I see that. You're worthy to be saved. God says there's nothing in you that is deserving, nothing that you can maintain, nothing that motivates God to save us short of God's unchanging, gracious character. Do you agree with that? The Bible says that we were enemies of God. 
that we were utterly helpless to save ourselves, even if we wanted to, we couldn't. We were ungodly, we were wicked, we were sinners. There was nothing in us or about us that would motivate or sustain God to love us short of God's unchanging character of grace and love toward us. And what that means is simply this, if there's nothing in you that neither motivates nor sustains God's love for you, that means that love that God has given you through his gracious and changing character, that love he gives you, it's not based on you, it's based on him. And therefore, it is a permanent possession of the believer. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Before you came to Christ, the Bible says that you were a sinner, you were ungodly, you were wicked. But when you came to Christ, something happened in your life. You changed. You were forgiven of your sins. The slate was wiped clean. You were made a brand new creature, the Bible says. You were made a child of the king. In other words, you will never be the same enemy of God, the ungodly person you were before you were saved. And here's what Paul is saying. If God loved you totally then when you were an enemy of God, when you were ungodly, if he loved you totally then, how could his love for you now be any less? Paul is saying, how do we know we have peace with God? Because of God's love that is not based on us, but is based on his eternal, unchanging, certain character. There's a story that is told that during the Revolutionary War, there was a faithful pastor of the gospel named Peter Miller. Peter Miller was a man who proclaimed the gospel, but he also had a man who hated his guts. He was a violent enemy of Peter Miller. He not only ridiculed Peter Miller, but all the people that attended his church family. One day, the same man was found guilty of treason and sentenced to die by death of hanging. When Peter Miller heard this, he set out on foot to intervene on his behalf before George Washington. The general listened to him and heard his plea. And he said, you know, as much as I sympathize with you, I don't feel I can pardon your friend. At that point, Peter Miller exploded. He says, my friend? He's not my friend. He is my worst living enemy. And with that, George Washington said, What? You've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. So with pardon in hand, Peter Miller went to the gallows where this man was about to be hung for treason. As he saw Pastor Miller coming, he snarled, old Peter, Miller, old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished when Peter Miller stepped out of the crowd and gave the pardon that saved this man's life. Now Miller's act of nobility will be remembered for time immemorial. But what he did was merely a shadow of what Christ has done for you and for me. Christ didn't merely gain our pardon. He is our pardon. He died on the cross for us to accomplish this. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
You see, one of the most amazing things about God's love, it is greater than you can ever imagine. It is far more than you can ever contain in your heart or experience. Someone has well said, God's love is the love that never fails. The unfailing love that we desire comes from him. His love runs toward me even when I am unlovely. His love comes to me when I am hiding. His love will not let me go. His love never ends. His love never fails. You see, I'm convinced the greater we understand God's love, the greater our assurance of his peace will be in our lives. And it may be that the reason you walk with insecurity or live with insecurity about whether God really loves you or you're at peace with him is because you do not understand the incredible love of God that he has towards his own children. God's love gives us a greater security of the assurance of his peace for us. Second is deliverance. Verses 9 through 10, he says, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Twice in these two verses, he says, much more. And the expression of what he's saying here is that if God did something great then, what he does now is even greater still. So the first much more that he's using here is this, that if Jesus shed blood on the cross, has given us forgiveness, then it is much more certain, even more certain, that we'll be delivered from God's wrath. You see, every person that has ever lived, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve the righteous wrath of God. We deserve God's anger toward our sin. And now Paul is saying because of Christ's shed blood on the cross, much more now we are certain that we're going to be saved from God's wrath. Now, as I listen to this, I think about what Paul is talking about here. The Bible talks about God's wrath in a couple of ways. One is that Jesus took God's wrath on the cross for you and for me. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God. Jesus took the very wrath you and I deserve on the cross so we could have forgiveness. But there's another kind of wrath here that he's talking about. He's talking about God's wrath, not just what Jesus experienced on the cross, but he's also talking about, and it includes, the wrath of God's coming judgment on this world. I believe what he has in mind here as well, the tribulation. That one day God is going to unfurl his wrath on a world that has rejected and despised his son, Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. It's interesting to me that there are a number of believers I've run into who say, you know what, uh, believers better prepare. You're going to go through this tribulation. You're going to endure God's wrath. You better be ready for it. And yet as I read the Bible, I see time and time again where God says, no, I've spared you from my wrath, not only the wrath against your sin, but I'm also sparing you from the wrath that is coming to the world in my judgment. Where Paul talks explicitly about removing the church from the world is in 1 Thessalonians. And twice in that book, in those five chapters, he says twice that God is going to deliver his people from this horrendous judgment that is going to come on the world. 
First in chapter 1, verse 9, second in chapter, uh, pardon me, chapter 1, verse 10, and second in chapter 5, verse 9. You see, someday God's going to unfurl his wrath on the world that has rejected his son. Now, some people like to say, well, does that mean that we're going to be exempt from wrath altogether? There are three kinds of wrath the Bible talks about. There's a wrath of man, there's a wrath of Satan, and there's a wrath of God. The Bible does not say that we are immune from the wrath of man, or even from the wrath of God, if God or from the wrath of Satan, if God should so choose. In fact, history is chock full of people suffering from those two kinds of wrath. And Bible, Jesus himself in John chapter 16, verse 33 says, In this world you will have tribulation, that same word. But he said, Take courage, I have overcome the world. We will have tribulation in this world, but it's not the same as the tribulation of God's unfurling wrath that's going to come during the seven-year tribulation. Jesus, in fact, warns us, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that man's wrath and Satan's wrath is nothing compared to God's wrath. And Paul says, you have been spared from that wrath. And because you've been spared from God's wrath, you don't need to worry about man's wrath or Satan's wrath. Why? Because you've been saved by God's Son through your faith in Him. Now, we're going to escape that wrath not because we're worthy, but because God chose to save us by His grace alone. So Paul is saying this, that because we've been justified by Jesus' blood, it is even more certain that we're going to be spared from the wrath of God that is coming on the world. But there's a second expression of much more he uses. He says, if God has brought, it, brought us to himself through his son while we were enemies of God, how much more will he save us now because we are his children? And Paul's point in both these expressions is to strengthen our faith, what it means to have God's peace. You see, because of the great certainty we have, of being delivered from God's wrath and being saved, now being God's children, we can know that whatever feelings of uncertainty we have or feelings of doubt are not reliable because God tells us, I've saved you in my grace. I've chosen to love you. And that is a permanent possession that you have. You never have to worry about me punishing you or expressing ill will toward you through some kind of circumstance. I love you with an eternal love and that will never change. I love the words of one commentator who said it well. Listen to what he says. How can a Christian whose past and future salvation are secured by God be insecure during the time in between? If sin was no longer, if sin is no, no barrier to the beginning of our redemption, how can it become a barrier to its completion? If sin, in the greatest degree, could not prevent our becoming reconciled How can sin in a lesser degree prevent our staying reconciled? If God's grace covers our sins, even the sins of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, I want you to be so sure in God's love for you, in God's deliverance in your life, that no matter what feelings of uncertainty you have or what circumstances you go through, I want you to know that you can trust completely and fully in my word, not your feelings. There's a story that's told that Dwight L. Moody, the famous evangelist, 
had a man who came to him one time and he was worried because the man didn't feel like he was saved. And Moody very wisely asked him, he said, well, was Noah safe in the ark? Well, certainly he was, the man said. Well, what made him safe, his feelings or the ark? At that point, the man got the point. How foolish I've been, he said. I'm not, it's not my feeling, it is Christ who saves. It's not your feelings that save you. It's Jesus Christ who saves you and your hope in him alone. A third fact that he gives us to strengthen our sense of peace in God's, of God's peace in our lives is God's reconciliation. He says in verse 11, not only this, but we also exult, that is, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now listen to the New Living Translation. I love the way he captures Paul's expression here. He says the same thing. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So God has reconciled us to himself, removing the enmity, removing anything, any barriers in a way, and he has now made us friends with him. And he says, now we exult in this. And when he says that, there is a reminder that he said this a couple other times in the same passage. The first time he uses we exult in is found in the very beginning in verse 2. He says, we exult in in the hope of the glory of God. We used to fall short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and fallen short, but now we exalt in the hope and the glory of God. Why? Because he's given us a confident future that we can look forward to. And this sets us apart from any so-called faith the world offers. It sets us apart, if you will, from the Eastern religions that have nothing to offer but a nightmare of reincarnations. Can I ask you a question? Why would you want to come back here? <laughs> and yet the Eastern religions say, you know what? If, you, if you're good enough, you'll come back, maybe not as a toad, but maybe as something else. Existentialists see the world as being an absurd place and future even more absurd. Evolutionists have no answer. They have no hope. And they certainly have no comfort. But because of Christ, Paul says we can rejoice in hope and the glory of God. But he also says we can exult in our tribulations. Now, this is harder for us to grasp, but when we begin to understand the assurance that God's word gives us, it begins to make sense. The Bible says that you're going to go through difficulties, but God will never waste your pain. And he assures us. Even if it's self-inflicted, God will use it for your good. And therefore, we can exult, we can rejoice with a confident rejoicing that no matter what you're going through, you can say, this too shall pass, and God is going to use it for my good and his glory. But he also says in verse 11 that we exult or we rejoice in God himself. I don't know what your time is like with God when you spend time alone with him. When you spend time in his word or you spend time reflecting on who God is and what he has done for you in your life. But there is nothing greater than to open God's word and say, Lord, help me understand who you are. 
the greatness of your might, the greatness of your love, the greatness of your forgiveness, the greatness of your promises toward me. When you open the word and you ask him to show you who he is, what happens is praise begins to overflow from your life because you realize there is no one like God. There is no one who can give us a peace or make peace with us like God. So do you see what Paul is doing in this passage? He is strengthening our assurance of what it means that we have peace with God. By examining God's love, his deliverance, his reconciliation, Paul is saying, I want you to deepen your assurance of your salvation. How can you be loved more than Jesus Christ has loved you? How can you be delivered from wrath more than what Jesus Christ has delivered you from? How can you be reconciled to God more than what Jesus Christ has reconciled you to him? And the answer is, you can't. Only Christ can do these things for you. Can I ask you a question this morning as we bring this time to a close? You don't have to raise your hand. But however you came here this morning, and you wonder, how sure is my salvation? If you died today, how do you know you'd go to heaven? Because of your feelings? Can you trust them? You can only trust your feelings when they're based on the facts of God's promises. You see, I believe some of you came here today and you're struggling in your relationship with God because you really don't understand God's love for you in the enormous price that he paid through his son for you. And you're letting your feelings or even the memories of the past create instability in your life and uncertainty toward God. And God is saying to you this morning, I don't want you to trust those feelings anymore, but trust the promises and the assurance of my word. Some of you are going through things in your life and you're wondering, is God punishing me for this? Why is this happening? Is there something I haven't confessed? You can be assured, not because of your feelings, but because of God's word. That what is coming into your life is not because God is expressing ill will toward you or punishing you, but rather he's allowing it to strengthen your hope in him. And God says you are now reconciled. You are now friends with God. And nothing will ever break that. You ever have a good friendship? You've had it for years and years and years and you thought nothing can ever break this friendship. And in some misunderstanding, some dumb thing happens and suddenly that whole friendship is jeopardized. And you go, I can't believe this. We've been friends for years. How can this friendship be destroyed? God says, I want you to know something. Nothing will destroy our friendship because it's not based on you. It's based on me. 
and nothing will stop that. One of my favorite stories talks about the early days of our country when a weary traveler came to the great Mississippi River. At that time, there was no bridge. It was early winter, and as he came to this river, he had to get to the other side. And he noticed that there was a layer of ice across the entire great river. Having never been here before, he wasn't sure. But he felt the urgency of needing to get across the river. But evening was coming. As he looked at the water and the ice, he hesitated and deliberated for a long time, feeling the heavy weight of fear, not wanting to plunge through to an icy, cold death on the ice. Finally, he decided he was going to take a risk. Slowly, he got on his hands and knees, and he began to stretch himself out on the ice and creep across the ice. He was about halfway through over the river, and he heard coming from behind him singing. As he looked around, he saw a sleigh that was being pulled by horses. It was filled with heavy coal, and the man who was driving the sleigh was singing. And suddenly this man felt really silly because the very same ice that he was trying to be careful on withstood the weight of this heavy sleigh and these horses effortlessly. And sometimes I think that's exactly what we do with God's promises, isn't it? Sometimes we very timidly and very carefully step out on God's promises. We're so afraid they're going to give. And so we very carefully put our weight on there thinking somehow if we don't put all our weight on God's promises, they won't break. Only to find someone come along in our lives who's put their full confidence in God's promise. And they're not living life with timidity or fear. They're living life with joy and confidence and strength. That's what God wants from you and he wants from me. God has not called you to a life of fear. He's not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. Some of you are living in fear. You're living in fear whether God loves you, whether you really have peace with God, whether you're really forgiven, whether you're really going to go to heaven or not. And God says, stop. If you've placed your, son, your faith in my son, Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sins and you've asked him to be your Savior and your Lord. Your feelings are not going to save you. It's Christ who saved you. Stop living a life of timidity and fear. Folks, I just tell you that the world we live in right now is watching you. And the world we live in is not getting better. It's not getting easier. It's getting uglier. It's getting darker. It's getting scarier. And the world is watching you. And what a tremendous time as we live in a time of tribulation being squeezed by the pressures of the world to shine the confident light of who God is in our lives. God says, stop trusting your feelings and start trusting my word. And when you do, it will dramatically change your walk with God.